So my name is Jasper. Uh, I think I know just about all of you guys, but for anybody visiting, I'm the executive pastor here. Um, I am just coming off of quarantine. I had COVID, and thankfully it wasn't as bad as I thought. Uh, when I got diagnosed, I had COVID and the flu. So I've been telling everybody I'm the king of the man cold. So when I found out I had COVID and the flu, I said, just get my tombstone ready. I'm dying. I'm, I'm not going to make it. Um, and I was fully expecting it to be very rough, but thankfully... I had a few days there where I felt pretty bad, but then I got over it pretty quick. So I am happy to be back. Yeah. It's really hard to go from this to not having this. This is strange. So I'm glad to be back and see you guys. I don't care how cold it is. Nothing was going to keep me from coming this morning. So I'm glad to be back. Um, thank you for your prayers, for your thoughts. Thank you guys for, for bringing food and everything that you guys did for, for me and Sherry. Thank you all so much. Um, thankfully... Sherry didn't get it, so she's got like some super immune system. I don't know what's going on with that girl, but she's she's fantastic. So um, I also want to thank Alan and the crew for, for doing things and keeping this place going while Kyle and I have both been out. Uh, we are very fortunate to be in a church where we have multiple men who can preach God's word faithfully, who can keep this place going. So thank you guys very much for everything y'all did. Give them a hand. They, they did a fantastic job. We're a blessed church. We really are. So, and now I also want to ask you guys to continue praying for Kyle and Patricia. Uh, Kyle had it and was getting over it, and quarantine was almost over. Patricia started showing some signs. I think she's been okay, but now a few of the kids are sick. So you guys just keep praying for them, lifting them up. Give them a text or a phone call or maybe take them a meal. Uh, we love them. We want to support them, and we know they're ready to be back. I think this is probably the longest they've ever been away. So I know Kyle is beside himself. He can't stand to not be with you guys. So keep praying for them. Um, send them some, some well wishes if you think about it. So anyway, uh, this morning, uh, we are going to be continuing through the series that we started last fall called The Big Picture. Um, the Big Picture was a series we were going to do to just kind of walk through the Bible we were going to look at the major kind of overarching theme of all of Scripture and the kind of the, the, the sentence that we used or, the, or the, the phrase that we used to kind of sum this up was God's people enjoying God's presence within God's place for God's purpose. And so we've been walking from the beginning all the way through looking at how the whole thing has one overarching theme. Alan uh, kicked us back off last week uh, with this, his marvelous rendition of the genealogy of Christ. Thank you for that, Alan. That did my heart good <laughs> watching from home to listen to you read all those names, brother. That was fantastic. So um, again, I, I really do appreciate it, man. You did good. And um, so we're back in this series, and today we are going to be in Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 18. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Uh, get that pulled up. So this text, if you'll notice, the section header says the birth of Jesus. So this is a text that you're going to most of the time here preached at Christmas. This is a Christmas text. We're talking about the birth of Jesus. So we're going to talk about all the things. You know, we're going to talk about wise men and frankincense, whatever that is, and all the things that go with the birth of baby Jesus, right? Not exactly. Not today. Today we're going to take a different look at this. Um, this is something that I was not fully aware of, but there, there are only two accounts in Scripture of the birth of Jesus, Matthew and Luke. We have accounts of the birth of Jesus. They're not in the, that, this story is not in the other two Gospels. 
And those two stories vary drastically. There's a lot of differences in those two stories. And so in one, in the book of Luke, you have a lot of details about the night of Jesus' birth. What was happening that night? Uh, there's a lot of differentiation bef before the story on the birth of John the Baptist also to, to distinguish these two men and how they were connected and all of that. What we're looking at today in the book of Matthew is actually a look at two years later. So it is a, a, a story of the birth of Jesus, but it's not that night. It's later on, but it's, it's a bigger picture of what was happening when Jesus was born. What was actually taking place here? Why was it significant? So what has happened, though, because these two stories are a little different and they talk about some different aspects of it all, of course it's all connected, but what has happened in our culture, especially here in America, is we have blended these two stories into this weird nativity story that we celebrate every year where you've got your nativity scene with the wise men there and all that, and they weren't even there that night. They didn't come until two years later. And There's a lot of details that I'm not going to spend a lot of time it's just not worth it this morning but um, it's really strange because we've ended up with this strange hodgepodge story that's not real accurate but for today's purpose we're going to look at the big picture and, and what was actually happening why this was significant okay so looking at Matthew uh, we see this monumental event that took place and Matthew does a great job of explaining why this was such a big deal, okay? That it wasn't just that he was born that night and it was all cute and everything, um, but this was a big deal. So I'm gonna be quoting a couple of different times today from Wayne Grudem. Uh, he wrote a systematic theology. I know this is kind of getting nerdy, but he's got some really great things to say. And so the very first thing I want to read from you, from him, is that he says this talking about the birth of Jesus. He says, it is by far, the most amazing miracle in the entire Bible, far more amazing than the resurrection, and even more amazing than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join himself to a human nature forever so that infinite God became one person with finite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all of the universe. And if you think about it, that makes sense. It's not too surprising that God can create the universe and the world. Yes, it's amazing, but not too surprising. It's also not too surprising that, that Christ went to the cross and what he accomplished once he did that. What's truly mind-blowing is that he came in the first place, that, that God, that Jesus, the Son of God, second part of the Trinity, came down and took on flesh and became human. So we're going to talk about that this morning, and I want to, to just give you the, the disclaimer right from the onset that this is a very weighty topic, okay? This is a very tricky and complicated thing to wrap our minds around. There's been a lot of debate there's been a lot of argument over some of the details around this. Uh, there have actually been denominations that have started and split over this. Um, so there's a lot to take in. I could chase rabbits in about 50 different directions, and I've had a really hard time trimming this down to really just try to drive home my point. So I don't want to get lost in all of that. I want you to know that we are by no means going to have an exhaustive 
explanation of the birth of Christ and the, the two natures of Christ in being fully God and fully man. Um, but I'm going to do my best to drive home a central point to you today, okay? So I just want you to know that, that this is a very big topic that we're going to be talking about. Hopefully, we can walk away today with some clarity and some basic understanding about it, all right? I think it would be wise if we stop right now and pray and ask God to help us in this so that me trying to explain it is not what you hear this morning, but you hear God speak through His Word, okay? So let's pray again really quick. Father, thank you for this word. I thank you for the book of Matthew and what we're about to read. And I pray that as we do it, that you will illumine your word for us, that you will speak to us through it, uh, that you will help us to understand and realize the significance of what happened when you sent your son. We love you. We ask it in his name. Amen. All right, so let's just kick right off in Matthew chapter 1. We're starting at verse 18. And again, this is going to have the, the section header in a lot of your Bibles, the birth of Jesus Christ. So starting at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. You guys understand what's happening here? She's pregnant, and they haven't been married and, and laid together yet. So, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. It's talking about Isaiah. It says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king. Now again, I've already kind of explained, but you're talking about Jesus was born. We're looking at like two years later, okay? Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all of the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Okay, so anyway, I'm going to keep going, sorry. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, so it is written by the prophet Micah, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Yeah, right. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. 
And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. That's from Hosea. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Okay, so that's a lot. Uh, That's a lot to read, but there's also a lot going on there. Again, there's a lot of details in this story that we could spend a lot of time talking about. But for today's purposes, we're going to think about the big picture. Like, what was happening here? Why was this important? If you think about this series we're going through right now, it's called The Big Picture. If you think about the big picture of the Bible and of Scripture and everything we've been looking at leading up to today, if you'll remember way back to the Garden of Eden, all right, that's where the fall happened and the curse We saw that the the curse was pronounced and we saw all the prophecies even then of that there will be one that will crush the head of the serpent and he will bruise his heel. And so from that point on, from the Garden of Eden and the curse and throughout the Bible, human history has been a story of redemption. It's been a story of, look, this bad thing happened. It changed everything. It changed life as we know it. And we need someone to come save us. We need help. We need a Savior, right? That's, that was the theme all throughout the Old Testament. They were awaiting a Messiah. They were awaiting Emmanuel, God with us. They were waiting for someone to come fix it, right? So it's been a redemption story. There were prophecies of this coming Messiah all throughout the Old Testament. He was not going to be just another earthly king. But as we saw earlier, he was going to be God with us, Emmanuel. He was going to be God incarnate. He would be the fulfillment of the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenants. So God promised to Abraham and David that he would make a great nation of his offspring, that his offspring would sit on the throne and all of these things. So there's all this great expectation in these covenants that God himself promises And so the people throughout the Old Testament are waiting for this to happen. They're waiting for this grand king, okay? How many of you have seen the movie Aladdin? Really? That's it? Wow. Okay, so Aladdin. Those of you who have seen it know what I'm talking about. So 
And when I think Aladdin, I'm thinking, I'm a 90s kid, so I'm thinking the one with Robin Williams, not the Will Smith one. So in the movie Aladdin, you guys remember, he makes his wish, he becomes a prince, right? You know the scene I'm talking about where he enters the city, okay? Before he ever even comes in the gate, they open the gates and there's these horns and trumpets and they're saying, make way for Prince Ali and all this. He's not even in there yet. But then he comes in, of course, they break into song as they always do, and it's Robin Williams, the genie, singing. And all the lyrics of this song are just fantastic. I mean, they paint him like he is the best thing ever, right? He's got 75 golden camels, purple peacocks. He's got 53. He's got the monkeys. Let's see the monkeys, like all the stuff, right? Uh, and he's just grand. I mean, he is, he's uh, faced the galloping hordes, a hundred bad guys with swords, like all the things, like he is the man. And so that is a grand entrance. That is like, they come in heralding who you are. I'm not going to sing it. I see you looking at, I'm not going to sing it. Half of you guys could get up here and we could do the song. I know we could. Everybody's got it in their brain. Um, that was a grand entrance. And that is what the people of the Old Testament expected in this Messiah. They expected a king that would come with majesty and honor and glory. You know, and as a matter of fact, one of the prophecies in Daniel says he'll come on the clouds. Like he, he's going to be a, a divine king. He's not just another earthly king. So they were expecting fireworks when this guy comes on the scene, right? But we know now, after the fact, that that is not at all how the Messiah entered, right? Jesus came lowly. He was human, just like me and you, but yet fully God. He felt hunger. He felt pain. He felt sadness. He felt the sting of betrayal when his friends left him. He came not to be served, but to serve others. As Dane Ortland points out in his book, Gentle and Lowly, which I highly, highly recommend. If you don't read another book all year long, read the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. It is fantastic. He points out in this book, the only verse in the whole Bible where Jesus tells us about his heart and about his, who he is, his very being, is in Matthew eleven twenty eight, and he says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. For you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Of all the ways that Jesus, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, of all the ways he could have described himself and his heart, he says he's gentle and he's lowly. Grudem says this, he says, Jesus' human nature gave him an ability to experience suffering and death, an ability to understand by experience what we experience, and an ability to be our substitute sacrifice. Without becoming human, he could never have done this. So Jesus was fully human, just like you and I, but yet without sin. He lived a perfect life, he did not give in to temptation, but was tempted in every way just as we are. What's crazy is that I've often I've heard people say this. I know I might have even thought this before, that Jesus was tempted, but he didn't sin. He lived this perfect life. And I always, I, don't, I guess as a kid, had in my mind that 
that this was easy for Jesus because he was God. He was God's son. Like he came and it was just nonchalant. Like, oh, not a big deal. I'm not, that's, I'm tempted, but uh, whatever. No, he, he was tempted just like we are. You understand what that means that when we're tempted, we reach a point where we break and we give in to temptation and we sin and we do the wrong thing. And we think that, oh, well, because I've actually sinned, Jesus can't really know what I go through because he's never felt guilt and shame and all of that from sin. Jesus knows it more fully than you or I ever will because he was tempted and never gave in. He didn't give up and sin. He stayed strong throughout, but yet turned around and paid the price anyway, even though he never did it. He paid the price because you did it and I did it. So he's paid the penalty that we never will, even though he never did it and we did. <laughs> That's why this is called the glorious exchange. That's why it's called the condescending love of Christ in that it doesn't make sense. It's not fair. It's not just at all. We often talk about justice. Like we want justice. We want fairness. But if we really wanted that, you and I would all go to hell. That's what we deserve. That's what we've earned. None of us deserves heaven. He does. But yet He gives it to us. And He takes on our punishment for us. It's not fair, but it's loving. So, Again, uh, Jesus was fully human, but we know He was fully God, that He did not give up any of His divinity or His deity in coming to earth and taking on flesh. He was the Messiah. He was that King that they were longing for the whole time. They didn't know what we know now, that Jesus would come on the clouds, that He would come in majesty at His second coming at His second advent. He didn't come that way at first, but that's what they were expecting. See, we now know that. But He was the Messiah. He fulfilled over 350 prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. There's the account in the New Testament of when Jesus gets baptized and the Holy Spirit descends on Him like a dove and God the Father Himself speaks from heaven and says, this is My Son who I'm well pleased with. So there's your confirmation right there that He was the Son of God as if all the fulfillment of all those prophecies wasn't enough. If you think about that, 350 different prophecies about who this Messiah will be, that's almost statistically impossible for any one person to do all those things, but He did. He perfectly fulfilled every one. Again, in the New Testament, throughout His ministry, He starts out, if you remember one of His very first miracles, the wedding at Cana, where He turns the water into wine. They run out of wine at the wedding. His mom, Mary, comes to him. He's like, hey, they're out of wine. And he's like, it's not my time yet, woman. It wasn't time for him to start revealing who he was yet, but he was starting to do these miracles and starting his ministry. He went ahead and turned the water into the wine, but all throughout the beginning of his ministry, he was telling people when he would do these miracles, like, don't tell anybody what just happened. Like, go and sin no more. Serve the Lord, but don't tell anybody about this yet. And every time they would run and go tell the whole town what just happened, and they'd come out and follow Jesus. And, but finally, there came a time in his ministry where he starts telling people who he is. He finally pulls the curtain back and makes the claim. you got to understand, this is a big claim. Because remember, he was fully human. He looked like a normal dude walking around. So for a guy like that to tell you, hey, I'm God, I'm the Son of God. Like, that's a big deal. That's not something you're like, oh, okay. 
Like you might see, like, okay, <laughs> you know, if someone said that to you today. So back then, that was a huge claim to make. But he was fully God. Again, going through the New Testament, thinking of all these ways that he proved it. Pontius Pilate, when he was getting ready to be crucified, asked him, so you're the king of the Jews? And he says, it's as you say. Five different prophecies just in our text that we've read today where Matthew used these Old Testament prophecies to show that Jesus fulfilled these. He was the Messiah. He was fully God, yet fully man. Another fantastic book that I highly recommend is called Things Unseen. It's written by J. Gresham Machen, or Macon. I'm not sure. In it, he makes an interesting observation. Um, throughout the Scriptures, Jesus is referred to as the Son of God and the Son of Man. And he uses the title Son of Man for himself multiple times. And so he, this guy makes an interesting, interesting observation on that. He says, Our first impulse might be to say that the title Son of Man is a designation of the humanity of Jesus as distinguished from his deity. So in other words, he's saying we might have a tendency to think, well, Son of Man means he was human, and Son of God means he was God's Son, and that's why he uses the two names. He goes on to say he was both God and man. And we might be tempted to say that he meant when he called himself Son of Man as well as Son of God. We were tempted to think that. But it is unlikely that it had this meaning at all. It is unlikely that there's any contrast in those two titles. And here's what he means by that. The key to understanding this is found in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, where one like a son of man appears in the presence of the Ancient of Days and receives everlasting dominion. On the basis of that passage, the coming Deliverer, this Messiah, had come to be called, in certain Jewish circles at least, the Son of Man, and had come to be thought of as destined to appear with the clouds of heaven and be the judge of all the earth. What our Lord Jesus did when He called Himself the Son of Man was to place a stamp of approval on this Jewish expectation because it really was in accordance with the Old Testament, and then he applied it to himself. When he used the title Son of Man to refer to himself, he meant it as a messianic title. It doesn't designate his humanity in contrast with his deity. It designates him as being that transcendent, heavenly person who was to come one day with the clouds of heaven and be the final judge of all the world. Amen. That is fantastic. I know I've read that like 15 times for you guys the first time hearing it, but that's huge. I never understood that. I never really thought much about why he was called son of man. But in calling himself that, he's saying, hey, you guys know of that and think of that as that's going to be the savior of the world. That's going to be the Messiah. Well, guess what? That's me. I'm that guy. You're right in thinking that, and it's me. I'm him. I'm here. Now, again, we know he didn't come on the clouds in his first coming, his first advent. That's coming later. But he was that guy. He was the Messiah. He was the one that they had longed for and waited for for so long. But they missed it. So many missed it because they were expecting something different. So now, we've kind of established a little bit about, again, we're just scratching the surface of the two natures of Jesus and that he was fully God and fully man. Again, I could, this, we could go on and on and on about this. But I want to ask the question now, why does this matter? Uh, why did he come in the first place? 
Why did God see fit to send His Son down to the earth to take on human form? Why? What's the point? Well, verse 21 of chapter 1 that we've read gives us the answer. Talking about Mary having a son, it says, She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's why Jesus came. That's why the second part of the Trinity descended to earth and took on human form was to save people from their sins. To be the Savior of the world. This is why He came. This was His mission. To come and save sinners like you and me. And what's amazing is that knowing this was His mission, He would not be deterred from it. Jesus throughout His ministry had a laser-like focus on what He came to do to fulfill the Father's will and He never swayed from that. In fact, when people, when His own friends, His own disciples tried to pull Him away from this mission, listen to what He says to them. These are His best friends. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter, you guys know who Peter was. That's like his, his number one guy. You know, It's like his... His top disciple. Peter was kind of the guy that was always trying to impress Jesus and all of that. Anyway, um, he took Peter, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen to you. It's really sweet of Peter. You know, he loves Jesus. And he's like, No, we're not going to let this happen. They're not going to murder you. This is what Jesus says to him. Now, granted, this, this is coming from a good place. Peter loves Jesus. But what Jesus came to do was so important that this is how He responds. He turned to Peter and He said, Get behind Me, Satan. You are a hindrance to Me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Ouch! That hurts, man. That hurts. But Jesus came for one purpose, and He would not be deterred from it. He came to fulfill a mission to obey the Father's will and be obedient to the point of death and even death on a cross, a sinner's death that He did not deserve. So that was His mission, was to come and save sinners by dying on a cross in our place, by being our substitute. This is called substitutionary atonement. There's your phrase of the week. So now we know why He came, but I want to ask the next question of, well, why did He... He came to save sinners, but why did He even want to save sinners? Like, What was the motivation in that? Why this, this laser-like focus on getting this thing done? Why was this such a big deal? We don't deserve it. We don't deserve to be saved. We didn't deserve for the Son of God to come die in our place. We've already established that. We deserve something, but it's not that. Our answer on why this was such a big deal to God and to Jesus is found in the most famous passage in all of the Bible. You guys know John 3.16? With that verse, we have a tendency to overlook the first part of it. It's really easy to remember that God sent His only Son, and that whoever believes in Him has eternal life and shall not perish. That, that part's easy to remember. We often forget the very first line of that verse. God so loved the world. That's why. That's the whole purpose behind it all. That's why He sent Jesus. That's why Jesus had to come die for sins because God loved the world. He loves sinners. 
Those who are His people, He loves. And He loved them so much that He would send His only Son to die in their place. Think about it. Sending Jesus to earth to take on human form did not benefit God or Jesus at all. That was only for our good that He did that. And He didn't have to do it. He did it because He loves you and He loves me. We forget that so often. Romans 5.8 says, God shows His love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We did not deserve it. We did not deserve someone that pure and holy to take our place on that cross. Can you imagine for a moment, can you imagine giving your child up for someone else? Can you imagine saying, this person is supposed to die. I love them enough that I'll let them live and I'll send my own kid to die in their place. I don't think, I don't know that we could ever do that. I don't know that we mortal humans have it in us to do that for another person. And the crazy thing is our, our kids are sinners. Amen? <laughs> Jesus was not. He was perfect and spotless. And yet God sent him in our place. It, that's why, again, this is called scandalous grace. That's why this is called the great transaction and it's a condescending thing and that it was scandalous to send a perfect God to die in the place of His sinful creation. It makes no sense, but it proves His love for us. So if you don't walk away from today with anything else, if you don't remember a thing I said, that's fine. What I do want you to know is this. God cares about you. Let that sink in for a second. God cares about you. I don't, I don't think we, I think we want to believe that, but I don't think we do sometimes. God cares about His people enough to send His Son for them. This is a huge deal. This is, this is why it's called good news. I don't have to pay the penalty for my sins anymore. If I trust in Christ, if I place my faith in Him, if I understand this and I repent and I... I love the Lord, I'm freed from my guilt and sin. He took it on for me. That is a that it, we can't wrap our minds around it. I don't think we ever truly will fully understand just how amazing this is. That's why the song Amazing Grace is so popular. It's such a big deal. This is a fantastic truth. And it is life-changing. When you fully start to comprehend how sinful you are, number one. That's something nobody likes to admit. We don't want to admit that. We want to think we're rock stars and I'm awesome and I'm special and everybody should love me. Realizing you are a sinner is step one. You don't deserve any good. You deserve hell. Number two is realizing that God loved you enough to send His Son for you. When you fully comprehend that and you fully understand just how scandalous that is, you can't help but love God back. That is when 
we willfully enter into a life of service to Him because He gave it all for us. So, again, this morning, I want you to know, Jesus came to this earth at His birth as fully human, but fully God at the same time, and He did so to save sinners. He did so because He loved His people that much. My last quote of the morning it's probably the most boring, but I love it. It's worded so good. It's old, so bear with me. It's got some of those words that end in TH. This comes from the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. Chapter 8, Part 2 sums up what we have been saying perfectly. It says this, The Son of God, second person of the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with Him, who made the world, who upholds and governs all things, hath made, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. Being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so he was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David according to the Scriptures, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion. This person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. That's very wordy, but it hits the nail on the head. <laughs> um, Guys, y'all can come back up, worship team. Uh, I'm going to wrap this up by saying this. Um, everything I've just talked about is the gospel message. The fact that God so loved the world that He sent His only Son, that whoever believes in Him won't perish but have eternal life. Jesus was fully God and fully man, yet He died a sinner's death on a cross so that whoever will turn from trusting in themselves and to trusting Him and place their faith not in themselves, but in Him. We will have eternal life if we do that. We can be saved from our sins through Him. This is good news. This is the gospel. And I want you to know that if you've known this, if this is not new to you, if you are a Christian and you have trusted Christ You've put your faith in Him. He is your Lord and your Savior. And you love Him with all your heart. If you know these truths, then this morning, guess what? You have every reason in the world to worship, to sing, and to be joyful. I know it's cold outside, but it's not cold in here. Not in our hearts. You have reason to praise God this morning for what He has done for you. And it's this message that we take Everywhere we go, into our workplace, into our families, we teach our kids these truths because we believe them with all our heart. So if you're a Christian in here today, I invite you to sing, to worship. Sing loud. Don't worry about the person in front of you. Just sing loud. Give your all to the Lord this morning. Just worship Him. He, has, he deserves your worship and your praise if that is not you, if you have never trusted Christ, if you're not a Christian, I have good news for you too. 
you can be saved from your sin. There is salvation and redemption available to you today. You have to understand first and foremost that you're a sinner. And then you have to be willing to lay down your life and follow Christ. Those who trust Him and those who trust and, and love Him and trust in Him for their salvation will be saved. So I invite you today, if that is you, and only you and God know that. And I'm not going to go around and ask people. If you want to come talk to me about that, I would love to talk to you about that. But that's between you and the Lord. But this is a moment to get real for a minute. I want us to all kind of do an inventory of our heart this morning. And if that's not you, if you haven't given God your life, do it today before it is too late. Don't waste another day. Don't tarry. If, look, I don't come up here with eloquent speech. I don't come up here as some fantastic public speaker that's entertaining and all that stuff. None of this is, is me. But if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, if He's moving your heart, don't ignore that. Respond in faith. Forget about me. <laughs> Deal with it. Talk to God today. Give Him your life. I love you guys. And I hope this has been enlightening. I hope it's brought some clarity to, to this story. And I hope that it's been inspiring for you and encouraging. You stand to your feet. Let's worship. Let's sing. I'm going to go down here and stand. And, and again... Look, I don't have any magic words. I'm not going to pray for you and save you. I can't do any of that stuff. But if you need to talk, if you have questions, I'd be happy to talk to you. I'd be happy to pray with you. I love you guys. Y'all spend some time praying and, and worshiping. Let's sing out to the Lord this morning.